Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. When I was 20 in college and his name was Baxter and we're still friends, um, that, that was like a recognition of, wow, this relationship has an infinity to it. And that was the first time I felt that. Um, and we were in college, we were hanging out. I think I caught his eyes and he caught mine. He was smoking a cigarette and, um, it was like an, an art party and we started talking. I don't even remember if we were talking very much. It was pretty nonverbal. It was pretty much an instant recognition of like, you're mine and I'm yours. And, um, and this is, and, and now we're, we're clicking in, we're clicking into something that's bigger than us. And, um, and it was really creative from the start, full of creative energy. In fact, when I read just kids and I read about Patty Smith and Robert Mablethorpe, I thought, Oh, that was, that was me and Baxter. That was us making drawings together, making music together. Um, having a sense of this other person that constantly surprised you and where your imagination was constantly being mobilized and where you were kind of this entity, this third that was not you and not him, but this thing that you made together, that was your energy together, that was your relationship, that was the love. And it was really scary and really frightening because what if he didn't feel like I felt? And what if, you know, and I remember he was from Mississippi and we were in school together at Yale. And I remember like a month into our relationship, he decided to drive up to Missouri where I was from. I am from. And he came to the door in like a tweed jacket and um, a button down shirt and his jeans and it tucked in instead of like a t-shirt or whatever he'd normally be wearing and Levi's and with a, with a bottle of wine and a painting that he had painted for my family. And, uh, and, um, and I remember my parents ringing the doorbell and answering the door and seeing Baxter there. And it was just, it was such a, and I remember my mom looking at me like, well, okay then. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. 
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Megan, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. Um, I was introduced to you by way of uh, one of our former guests, Bob Gower, who mentioned that you teach a class on love at NYU. And coincidentally, we happen to be having this conversation on the day of my parents' anniversary. And <laughs> I have so many questions for you. It is absolutely ridiculous. But I figured I wanted to start <laughs> this uh, differently than I have in the past. And I want to start by asking you uh, to tell us about the first time that you got your heart broken. Okay, I have to think about that for a minute because there's lots of heartbreaks, lots of different kinds of heartbreaks. Mm-hmm. Like there's a first, I suppose the first time I got my heart broken was by a friend, um, a girl friend of mine. Um, when I was about 10 years old and I shared everything with her, I think we sort of joined and merged worlds in a lot of ways, you know, almost like at that age when you really can have like a whole universe with another person and what feels like a secret language and almost like the other person is your hideaway and you're theirs. And, um, and then, uh, one day it wasn't like that anymore. It was like, as if I had disappeared. Um, and, that was really, that was hard. There were actually two of those are coming to mind. Again, as a teenager, um, it's kind of riffing into the next time that happened. It's interesting. Both of my two, my two first heartbreaks were both with friends, not romantic. Um, even though I had romantic um, situations going on in, in there, um, The second time, I guess even the bigger time it happened was as a teenager when I was really looking to celebrate my romantic life with a friend, a good, a really good friend. And um, the same thing happened. Basically, uh, I was made to know that if I didn't share details about this, that I didn't want to share that that they would be shared for me. And that felt devastating because it didn't feel safe, you know? So I guess, I guess in a way, I have no idea how I was going to answer this question, <laughs> but, but it's really interesting what comes up because it's, I guess it's what's coming up is that heartbreak isn't always It's not always what we think of as heartbreak. Those were definitely my first two devastations. And it involved thinking that, what was safe was somehow ruptured. And then I didn't, I didn't know then what, how much could I express myself Mm -hmm. and feel free and liberated to do so in the world? And how much could I enjoy my joy with others? I think that was like, that was, that had, that had to be repaired, Mm -hmm. you know? I, I love that answer. Uh, for, for numerous reasons. I, I think that being a teenager is probably the worst experience of being a human being. Like, I really do. There's no, there, if there's one part of my life that I would happily never go back to, it's being a teenager because it was awkward. It was uncomfortable. I even lied to my own parents about open house one year because I was embarrassed by the fact that they had Indian accents. Mm, so you told them it wasn't happening or something I like that? I just didn't tell them that it was going on, period. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, One of the 
the books there have you do you know Dan Siegel's uh-huh. literature he has this book called I think it's called Brainstorm about teenagers and it was so cuz I think almost everyone has that experience and it's so interesting cuz he has this really interesting theory where he says that we don't know how to relate to teenagers like adults and people treat it like we're, we are manifesting this. We're creating this phenomenon culturally in teenagers by assuming that it's just something to get through and to kind of white knuckle and to kind of like hold your breath. And even as the parent, it's like, oh my God, we got to just skate over these or blast through these years, like a car wash, like as quickly as we can and come out the other side. And he's saying that like teenage experience gets lost for the teenagers because no one's kind of guiding them and for the adults because of the way that it's framed. And his whole, his whole argument is that it's this incredibly potent, creative, imaginative time when all of our synapses are joining and we're learning how to be with other people and to take risks and to learn our like, really deep, high contrast, emotional terrain that's unfurling in those years, right? It's so extreme. And he's saying all of that we could be harnessing. And instead it's this disaster for almost everyone on the planet, you know? So I like his, yeah. Yeah. So this takes me back to to something that I I remember um, seeing it. it, Yeah. There's an episode, a series on Netflix called 13 reasons why, um, which is about a young girl who, you know, commits suicide and every episode is one of the reasons why she decided to kill herself. But what interested me most about that series was the outtakes that they did at the end, um, where they talked about sort of the, the brain development of people who are at that age and how they process emotions and how something feels so permanent and stings so much. Um, even something as as, such as, as cyberbullying. And I'm curious what your research, particularly in the area of love is shown about how teenagers process emotions and, and, you know, how does this emotional processing of difficult experiences like heartbreak change as we get older? Ooh, that's a big question. That, that feels like the, 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 the nesting dolls of questions. There's like, <laughs> Oh, 12 trust me, we're just getting started. Right. <laughs> I'm having flashbacks to being a kid and trying to put all those dolls together and take them apart. So, okay, let me, I'm just going to free associate to all everything you just said. Um, so in terms of, right, this time in life is really marked by, um, extremely heightened sensitivity and also the feeling, and you just nailed it, that, that things are permanent, right? That, that things aren't evolving. They actually are fixed. And instead of feeling dynamic, whatever's happening to me right now is what is what is period. And I think Romeo and Juliet is a great example. They were 13 in Shakespeare's play. And the feeling was, this is it. There's no, there's nothing that can shift. So whatever I'm feeling right now is the way that it's going to iterate on and on and on, like just like an echo that just goes, you know, into outer space kind of. And so that heightened sensitivity can go, you know, if, I mean, Siegel's argument is that if it, if it can get channeled and harnessed, it can, it can be worked with in all of these incredible directions. But if it doesn't, it can, it can be really, really dangerous. And I think, um, adding in, feathering in your next layer of your question around cyberbullying, um, you know, I think this is, oh gosh, I mean, 
part of, um, part of the cyber, well, there's bullying and then there's the cyber aspect of what you're saying. Um, bullying in itself is incredibly traumatic. Um, and that's an understatement, right? I mean, relationships and lives can be shut down by these kinds of forces. People can end up hiding enormous parts of themselves for years or even for lifetime lifetimes because, because somebody did something that made them feel like they couldn't bring that part of themselves into the world at all. Um, and then you add the cyber element to it, which I think Louis C.K. talks about so nicely in that in, in, in the riff or what he calls the rant on late night TV, um, that you and I were just chatting about before we went live, um, where he says that there's something really, um, really off and really disturbing and worrisome about having no, nothing mirrored back to you. So the fact that you can go online and bully and, and there's, you don't, you're not looking across at someone's face on the other side. You're not looking at a receptive person that's in anguish and that's devastated and that's contorted and where you can actually feel the energy, the thunk, you know, of your statement. And then you have to, and then that then is a circuit that's made and goes back into you and that you then feel bad. You feel horrible. And then that becomes part of learning empathy and developing that in this kind of vacuum of being able to fling things and just kind of act out in cyberspace is, is really worrisome and, and really damaging. And, and on the flip side, the person who is receiving that out of nowhere with no, no where to really go with it, because there isn't a person there to talk to. There isn't a witness. There's just kind of this inner life that then can shut down around those kind of statements. So one of my dear friends and longtime colleagues, Dr. Rachel Young, who um, uh, works in um, at University of Iowa, specializes in looking at cyberbullying and has done a ton of research and um and and really trying to document this, and she's she would be a great interview too, actually. Hmm. Sounds like it. So, how does this emotional response mechanism evolve as we get older? Like, what happens to it in our moments of heartbreak? And you know, why do certain ones? You know, you know, you talked about different types of heartbreak. Like, I, I honestly can tell you, I think I was thirty six the first time it happened to me because that was mm-hmm. the one time I felt completely destroyed by it. It was like just life shattering almost like it literally completely uprooted my life. Um, yeah. but yeah, I, and, and I want to talk about, um, sort of why we have the emotional responses we do, but before we get to there, I want to talk, uh, understand a bit more about how this evolves as we get older, like what happens with age, um, to this emotional response mechanism? Like what is, what, what impacts it? Hmm. Well, a lot, I mean, I think, Lots of things. And like you said, it isn't really bound to age in terms of when devastation happens. You know, I think we could back up and say, well, what is heartbreak? And what is it that happens in our inner life, in our inner world that makes it feel broken? You know, that allows for devastation versus whatever other emotions would come and and repair or feel rejected or feel hurt you know what in our world or our inner world gets completely inverted or where we almost get like thrown off kicked out of our 
former reality so that it feels like that, you know? And I think that could, that could happen at any age. Um, so, you know, I, it's hard to say in terms of how it, it evolves, but I think that in a way it can be, in a way, when you say you were 36, that to me, that makes me think, well, you, that was maybe the first time that you were all in, right? That there was, that there was enough of you saying yes, that you were allowing yourself to almost like free fall into this experience and not grip and allow that to happen. You know, one of my favorite mentors from Cambridge Hospital when I was training, his name was Les Havens. He said that falling in love is the closest most of us ever get to having a psychotic experience, you know, because it really is like a completely different reality, especially in the early days that we can shift into. So I think how it evolves, that's so person specific. Yeah. It really depends on each of our paths and what we're, where we're coming from. You know, some people are coming from a place of not ever giving of, you know, like, um, of not surrendering. Right. So they're going to have a totally different experience of this evolution than somebody who comes in the world without a lot of boundaries and is really porous and is, is kind of surrenders and is want to kind of merge and fuse all the time and has to learn to kind of shore up the boundaries mm -hmm. and may have a different experience with it. So I think ultimately all of us at some point, hopefully get to have this experience because mm -hmm. I think it, I think it, it, it remakes us in a lot of ways, reinvents us, shows us parts. We never, we were probably protecting for a long time. Wow. Uh, so many more questions based on that. Uh, mm. So I, I love that. I, I love this idea of, of surrender. So I have, I have two mm. questions that come up. Do you think that once we've been through that experience, our capacity to experience that kind of pain again um, without it having the same impact on us becomes stronger? Um, and two, from a, a medical perspective, why do you feel such like physical anguish in these situations? Mm. Can you repeat the first question yeah. again? So, if sorry, there was a really cool dragonfly that landed right <laughs> near us, right, right when you asked, it, and I was trying to do too many things at once. So, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. does having gone through this sort of experience that is incredibly painful after you surrendered give you the capacity to do it without it nearly having the same level of negative impact or, you know, sort of destroying you the way it does if you've yeah. been through it once. Um, that's the, the, that, that's the first question. And, um, now I've lost my train of thought. Yeah. Which well, I, let's, let's, let's go into that one for a minute okay. and then we can go. Yeah. The next one, which I think I remember, but, um, I mean, in a way, I think your question is bigger than about heartbreak. It's about how do experiences we have inform the next iteration of them. I mean, I think in the, in, in the, um, in the practice, like in my, in my psychiatry, my psychoanalytic practice, therapy practice in the office, and, um, I see people revisiting the same 
almost the same kinds of experiences, but each time it's a different level. So I always visualize it as kind of like a spiral where every time you go back to it, it's bigger and wider and you're grabbing some new piece of it. And there's something in the old, the old way. And then there's something in the new, and then that alchemy makes for the new experience. So I think in, in, in the kind of heartbreak we're talking about the first time that happens, it's so new. So it really is totally new terrain. Um, and we could, we could put lots of kinds of pain and suffering in this category, right? It's not, in my mind, it's not even just about heartbreak. It could be, um, it could be the first time, um, you know, you felt completely alienated or the first time, um, you felt completely unseen in, by the world or whatever, whatever it might be. But, but I think once you, once a person experiences that newness, then it's, it becomes more familiar. The next time you spiral around, there's this feeling of, yeah, I've been here, you know, and maybe it takes a few spirals, right? Like a few laps kind of, but there's this, there's this deeper sense of, um, I don't want to quite say mastery, but I do think it's part of being human, right? That we kind of foray or we're thrust or we're catapulted or we're hurled into, into new, parts of ourselves and new ways of existing. And then, and it's, and it's really painful because it's really vulnerable. We're really exposed. We don't know ourselves in these ways and it feels awful. I mean, it feels almost like die, a kind of death almost, even though it's also a new life. It's, it feels like a version of dying. And then from there, it's never quite, it's never quite like that again because we've been there. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, Oh, right. I've been, I've been here. I've even been to the place where, you know, I remember recently doing an art show um, where I was doing some performance art and speaking and leading this kind of massive visualization, kind of this Yoko Ono style thing. And it was really fun and really, really um there was a piece of it that was really different for me. And, and, um, the first time I did something like that, it, I thought, Oh, what am I doing? You know, this is painful. This is amazing, but this is painful. And then the next time I did it, I had the same set of uncomfort, uncomfort, I guess, like the same palette, mm -hmm. but it didn't feel anything like that. It was like, Oh yes. Okay. This is what it is. I know this song. I've heard this song before. I don't really know the lyrics and I can't really sing it, but I, I can hum it. Like I know there's a familiarity there. And so I think it's the same thing in my experience working with people over the years with, with heartbreak and, and, you know, people might be 80 when they have that first heartbreak because maybe they haven't allowed themselves to go there in that way. Maybe there, um, or maybe there's something new that's hatched that then gets, you know, um, I won't, I don't even want to say broken, but ruptured and needs, needs repair. So, um, yeah, those are some thoughts. Wow. Yeah. I think you answered both of my questions. Uh, the other one was about, you know, why we feel this like just immense physical pain when we're in this situation. Like you really, like, I remember thinking, I'm like, this is never going to end. Yeah. Yeah, it feels, it is. And, and I think there has to be a real strength in the self to be able to um, tolerate that kind of suffering too. You know, sometimes 
there's a, there's a real bravery in, in allowing oneself to feel it all right. You know, there's a lot of mechanisms in being human that are designed to cut us off from our feelings, right? There, there's the whole numbing, like it's almost like different species of how we manage uncomfortable feelings, right? So there's like, um, like we could do like a taxonomy a little bit right now of it. Like there's a species of the numbing, right? Where, it, whether that's, you know, people smoking cigarettes and kind of airlifting themselves out of moments, which I think is the more addictive part than the nicotine is the being able to bounce kind of in any moment. And there's, you know, an alcohol and in some drug use or, you know, and, and all the other ways people numb, right. Um, that aren't, that aren't even, uh, that there's so many, there's so many ways that we do that, um, by cutting people off, not listening, you know, we could put so many interesting things in that camp, um, kind of mechanisms of action. And then there's dissociation, right? Which is really where we cut ourselves off from our own consciousness. Um, and, and, and we don't feel, and we don't have access to the feeling, you know? And so, so instead of feeling rage, maybe we just smile all the time, even though inside the smile is like this deep rage, right? There are people that or you know, all of us can inhabit all these things. So it's not, it's not even like some people do this and some people, we all do all of these things to a greater or lesser extent. So, you know, dissociation and, um, a kind of fogging that can come with that for certain people or a kind of wall that goes up where they just really can't feel, or they're cut off, or they almost feel like they're existing in the third person. You know, they can't, they're not talking from a place of within, within their own, in the center of their own life. They're not like in the center of it. They're to the side of it, kind of talking about it. Um, I remember once talking with someone and she was, had a very difficult, very painful childhood. And she was talking for a long time and she, and then she, she stopped herself or, and she, she kind of overheard herself for a minute. And then she said, wow, I, uh, I feel like I'm just telling, I'm like reading a short story that someone else wrote. And I said, yeah, what's the feeling are you having in your body? And she said, I can't, can't even feel my body. I'm just kind of talking at the air at you. And that's an example of dissociation, you know, and then, and then there are other lesser or, or more mild, let's say ways that we cut ourselves off from our emotions. So there's all kinds of ways that we're always blocking these things, right? So to allow oneself to feel and to care and for someone else to matter and for something to matter is a, is a big deal. It's a big deal. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of bravery. It takes a lot of hope. You know, like Rebecca Solnit said in her book, um, Hope in the Dark, um, I think this is a great book. And she basically argues that um, it takes a lot more um, courage to hope than to despair. It's easy to despair because it just kind of automatically shutting things down and off, you know? So I think getting to a place where we feel and then work with the feelings and accept them and include them is a big deal. It's, it's not easy, but it's, it's important and it's, it's alive. Wow. 
So I have one other question about this. Um, one of the thought patterns that I noticed in my life when I, I was going through a particularly dif difficult situation was when I would ruminate and I would try to replay every single thing that I had done, trying to figure out if I had done one thing differently, would the outcome have been different? Oh, yeah. I've been there. Yeah. And We've I'm curious, all, like what, you know, what has yeah. your work shown about that? Is that just a, a natural tendency? Um, and then I have a follow up to that. It's a great question. I mean, yeah, I mean, I can say that in my practice, I've seen, you know, it, it end up amassing after doing this for years and years and years and kind of like having your 10,000 hours and seeing all the ways that um, uh, you almost kind of see these patterns emerge over and over again. And that's definitely one that I, I, I see and re-experience with people all the time that it's sort of a obsessional, um, almost like, a a fantasy of control too, of being at the, uh, almost like in the pilot's cockpit. And if I just push this lever and this button and this and get the right combination or like the right compose, the right musical score, it'll evoke the right response in the other you know, which is to kind of over-determine our own control and under-determine the other person's, which I think feels safe in a way, right? So it feels like, okay, if I could just master this code, like this combo combination lock, um, remember though, yeah, those where you turn the one way and then the other and get it just so, um, that will, that will kind of unlock, it's almost like, or that'll kind of create this reality for me and this other person. And I think we can all get caught in that mental, almost like eddy or swirl. And it's, um, it's protective in a way because it's, you know, I think it's very, a very common defense for all of us to, when we get anxious to kind of retreat into our heads and out of our bodies in a way. And so that's a very mental place to be, to be circling and cycling. And it's kind of like, I sometimes call it life math mm. where we think we can kind of recalculate. It's almost like when we're driving and we make a wrong turn and, and it grays out and it's like rerouting, re recalculating, recalc like what can we do to make it okay? And I, and you ask like the neuroscience behind it or why that it, why does it, why does it come up? Um, that's a good question. I don't know if people have studied that per se, I mean, I, I think on a, on one level, um, anytime dopamine, which, you know, is our fight or flight surge fix spiky neurotransmitter that, you know, happens when we have sex, when we have chocolate, when we have, um, a text message ding, anything that creates this immediate response and gets us heightened is a kind of obsessional neurotransmitter because we immediately want more and we immediately want another hit. And we, so it makes sense that as that gets activated and that, that that's going to, um, kind of be bellows to that flame in a way, um, and have a, that sort of effect on us. But I want to, I mean, I, I think there's, there's a lot of depth to your, to your question. Why, you know, why do we think, and I, I don't have all the answers, but w why do we go to that place instead of a place of, um, 
you know, feeling like what if I'm myself, the energy, the energies of my being and the other being will necessarily, like I can trust that design, you know, it's sort of the opposite of a place of trust, right? Because mm-hmm. let's say the, the opposite version would be something like, um, if I keep being my authentic self and this other person keeps being their authentic self, then if we are meant to join forces, it will naturally play out so that that happens. And maybe it could happen in a whole slew of different ways, but that that would, that would just come to be, come to fruition. You know, that would, I guess, be the other end of that, that paradigm, maybe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. 
With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So one more question about this part of our conversation. You know, we were talking yeah. uh, about surrender and you, know, you mentioned this was the first time I, I let myself all in, you know, go all mm-hmm. in, which is true. And I think my instinct after that was not to do that again. Um, because mm-hmm. my thought is, oh, like, you know, I, I feel this sort of pattern of, of if I'm too into somebody, I'm going to scare them away. And so now I'm very, like, hesitant. And, and so, you know, it's funny because you read books like Robert Greene's Art of Seduction, and he has an entire section on the fact that, you know, uh, he talks about the fact that too much interest in somebody too early is likely to scare them away. Uh, it, mm-hmm. You know, so I'm curious, like, how all this plays in. Like, how do you... So I guess what the real question is, you know, you want to maintain some level of vulnerability and authenticity, but at the same time, if your pattern has been, you know, this whole dare greatly get crushed, dare greatly crush, get crushed, your, your, your idea, and who knows, maybe my interpretation of what vulnerability and authenticity is wrong. Um, mm. I'm curious where, where you find the balance, you know, um, like that in all honesty, I'm scared to ever be that type of person again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you, you probably won't exactly be that kind of person again, because this experience unfolds into the next. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you may be, but that's not to say, that's not to say there's a not, not a lot more to it. I mean, your question about what's authentic and I mean, for some reason, this idea of maintaining self is coming to mind and what is, so, you know, I think it's this question of where is the self in the process of the relationship? Like I keep, I keep thinking of Rainer Maria Rilke's um, letters to a young poet in the seventh letter where he talks about, you know, immature love versus mature love. And, and, and he's, he's, I think sort of linking it to age, but I, I'm not, I don't link it to age because I think, um, there are, there are young people that experience mature love and old people that, that experience immature love and we can experience different things at different times, et cetera. But the basic idea is that, um, in immature love, we lose ourselves. We become pixelated. We fuse with the other. We lose our boundaries of self. We are kind of smitten and um, and kind of enter this oneness with the other person that doesn't allow us to have kind of self-differentiation in the mix. So we're not sort of delighting in that kind of cosmic oneness and at the same time snapping back into, okay, I'm me and this is what I think and this is what I feel and I'm okay and I'm secure in myself, you know, and mature love would be more of that, would be the ability to be alone with oneself with the other, be able to dip into one's own narrative, even if it totally is different than the other person's and be able to 
coexist in those ways um, rather than always trying to make one narrative out of two. So, um, you know, I think that over time there can be this, um, well, and in immature love, I think people often feel lost, like their self is kind of goes away or, or, and, and when they exit those relationships, they can feel like, where am I? I don't even know who I am anymore. I don't know where I, I went kind of, I was, you know, and it can come up in terms of pleasing, like somebody wants to go have dinner. Where do you want to go? Well, where do you want to go? You know, and that kind of where this, you know, and then pretty soon the other person is like, well, where are you? I can't find you anymore. You know, why don't you have any opinions? Do you like sushi or don't you kind of thing? Or, um, and so that can, that can happen. Um, and so sometimes the, I think part of, as you're talking, what, what's coming to mind is this idea of where does the self go and where does it exist and how do we hang on to it all the while joining with someone and connecting. And, um, I think that's different for everyone, but how do we maintain our own self and our own authenticity, um, at the same time that we're engaging in something new. So just using you as an example in this way, is part of, you know, what does daring greatly mean for you? Maybe, maybe, maybe not you, but let's, let's say somebody like you, maybe it's easy for them to have a, a, an outer layer of being all in and being, you're amazing. You know, when actually there's doubts about how they feel about that person or there's doubts about, um, what that means to kind of, kind of, uh, almost like jump it like cannonball. I'm just picturing like someone like jumping off a cliff, like cannonball style and having this huge splash. And maybe that's more comfortable than saying like, I don't know. I don't quite know how I feel, but I'm more comfortable feeling this way than, than bringing that in the mix. Or so I do think what, to your point a minute ago, like what's vulnerable or authentic for each of us, um, changes. And I, and I guess, I guess I would just say that, um, when a person is there and bringing in all of those parts, um, there is a kind of natural intelligence to the dynamic, I think, you know, that unfolds mm. and it's not that people are necessarily going to end up together or even feel the same way about each other, but, um, maybe it's a new kind of patterning that's, that feels different than, um, you know, the all in and then the, and then the crushed, you know, it's like, it's interesting to think about, well, what's being crushed? What is it that's, what parts of the self are, are being crushed? Do I not feel lovable now? Do I not feel worthy now? Do I not have the self-esteem? Do I, is it something about, um, feeling like I give more and the other person isn't, or am I attached to being the person that is more of the dazzler or, um, more of the, you know, the one that's the one that's conquering in a way, or, you know, so not to say that any of these may or may not apply to you, but I'm thankful. I'm grateful for you giving, giving context through yourself. Cause it just kind of opens up more specifics of how we might take some of those 
you know, questions. In other words, there really isn't one answer to any of these things. I'm not a, I'm not a very formulaic person or thinker in those ways. Um, but I think, you know, like Rilke, I'm really on a Rilke tear right now, but Rilke <laughs> always says, live, you know, live the questions, live into the questions. And I feel like that's what we're doing in this interview. Like we're really living into these questions. Like, what do they even mean? And those, that opens up so much. I think like that opens up a lot of, um, that liberates a lot of, I think, old narratives for people yeah. just to be yeah. like, yeah, what am I actually saying? Cause I do think people get stuck in narratives and roles and, and perform performative roles because, um, that's either what's worked or what they've known, or it, it was rewarded in their childhood or they did need it for a while. And so letting go of those and kind of breaking those apart and almost like, you know, tilling that all that soil and seeing what turns up, turning over those rocks is, it's very cool. And it's very powerful. Mm, wow. Well, let's do this. Uh, Let's shift gears. Uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about the sadder part of this story. Uh, so I want to mm. talk about the happier part of this story. Tell me about the first time you fell in love. Oh, gosh. Okay. You'd think that would be, you'd think that would also be like an easy <laughs> answer, right? Um, Cause there's, 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 there's like my early puppy love. Um, and, uh, I don't even know where that phrase comes from, actually, puppy love. Um, it was kind of like a puppy, though, and then it was, like, joyful and frolicking initially. Um, and then there's the first time I fell in love. I think I want to talk about the first time that I um, – I've fallen in love a lot. Have you, have you noticed that by the way that I'm pausing and deciding which thing to zoom in on or zoom out? Um, yeah, I think, I think that the first time that I fully fell in love, really fell in love was in, was in college. Um, and the earlier versions were incredible. Um, but I think there was, there was a depth to me at that point. So it's interesting. This is sort of along lines of what we were just talking about. Who was I at each of those ages and who could I bring into the relationship? Right. So I think when I was 20 in college and his name was Baxter and we're still friends, um, that, that was like a recognition of, wow, this relationship has an infinity to it. And that was the first time I felt that. Um, and we were in college, we were hanging out. I think I caught his eyes and he caught mine. He was smoking a cigarette and, um, it was like an, an art party and we started talking. I don't even remember if we were talking very much. It was pretty nonverbal. It was pretty much an instant recognition of like, you're mine and I'm yours. And, um, and this is, and, and now we're, we're clicking in, we're clicking into something that's bigger than us. And, um, and it was really creative from the start, full of creative energy. In fact, when I read just kids and I read about Patty Smith and Robert Maplethorpe, I thought, Oh, that was, that was me and Baxter. That was us making drawings together, making music together. Um, having a sense of this other person that, 
constantly surprised you and where your imagination was constantly being mobilized and where you were kind of this entity, this third that was not you and not him, but this thing that you made together, that was your energy together, that was your relationship, that was the love. And it was really scary and really frightening because what if he didn't feel like I felt? And what if, you know, and I remember he was from Mississippi and we were in school together at Yale. And I remember like a month into our relationship, he decided to drive up to Missouri where I was from. I am from. And he came to the door in like a tweed jacket and um, a button down shirt and his jeans and it tucked in instead of like a t-shirt or whatever he'd normally be wearing and Levi's and with a, with a bottle of wine and a painting that he had painted for my family. And, uh, and, um, and I remember my parents ringing the doorbell and answering the door and seeing Baxter there. And it was just, it was such a, and I remember my mom looking at me like, well, okay then, you know, like this, <laughs> this, this kid means it. Like he's a serious, you know, it was like this kind of like, talk about all in. He was like, I'm driving from, you know, Jackson, Mississippi um, to come meet you and your family. And he was really shy, introverted guy in a lot of ways, at least verbally, you know? And so, but there he was like, there he was on the doorstep in full regalia. Like I'm, I'm, I'm diving in, you know? And, um, and without much notice, I don't remember him really. It was more like I'm coming and here I am kind of thing. And, uh, and I remember, uh, just feeling like, here we go, you know, here we go. And here's, this is, this is, this is going to be, um, a real, a ride. And, uh, and I'll never be the same and he'll never be the same. And it did. I think the reason why I wanted to choose that one when you just asked me the question is that it felt that was the first time that I felt infinite possibility with another person where it just felt like, wow, we could, we can do anything and go anywhere and create what we want. And you are a universe and I'm a universe and, and we are another kind of multiverse together. And it's not that we were, I felt that we were all powerful or um, had superpowers or something like that, but it was, um, that's what it was. It was, it was sacred. It felt sacred. It felt in a way like I felt as a small child when you're still like fresh in the throes of your mystical self, you know, yourself that's totally and utterly connected to the whole and, um, and that's how it, that's how it felt. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Uh, truly mm -hmm. amazing. So I want to start talking about the class that you teach and, uh, start to ask questions about falling in love. But first tell us about the class that you teach. Cause the whole idea that you teach a class on love at NYU, I thought that's kind of out there and bizarre. So what, what actually is taught in this class? Like, uh, tell us about it. Does it feel out there? Can I ask you what feels, what feels out there and bizarre about it? I, I love well, that. Okay. So I, I, in my mind, I always felt like, okay, this is a process that's just supposed to occur naturally, but you know, and it just happens. And at 39, it hasn't happened to me. So of course I'm like seeking answers everywhere. I can find them from books and other things. 
And I thought, oh, okay, somebody teaches a class about this. I'm curious what actually goes into a class about this. And do people fall in love after the class? Mm. Mm. That's a great question. Might be an excuse for me to spend a semester at NYU, although I'd have to live in New York, which I don't want to do. (laughs) Oh, but New York is New York is a a pretty cool place. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, uh, um, it's full of uh, a lot of electric electric electricity, you know, a lot of inspiration, but, um, but yeah, to get, yeah. And by the way, you're always welcome to attend my class. Anytime you are, you do find yourself in New York. Just I'll, let I'll, I'll be stopping oh. by for sure. <laughs> yeah. And you can be a guest and you can be a guest speaker in the class or come listen. And I love having guest voices because it just adds this whole other really wonderful dimension um, to the class. Elena Brower, who's also a friend of mine and a colleague was one of my guests and Penny Pierce, who's kind of a metaphysicist was one of my guests. And I've this artist recently, I mean, I have really, and the students love it. So just know that you're, that you're always welcome. Um, and you're always invited. Just let me know. I will absolutely do that. Um, so you can alight in, and in, into this, you can be in the, the spaceship that is the, the NYU love class. Um, but yeah, so bizarre, right. Bizarre in the sense that is it, is this even teachable? I yeah, think is part I, of what that is about. really the question. Yeah. I think yeah. that's exactly where I was yeah. going with it. Yeah. 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 And how do you construct this? And well, I, I, I reveled, I have to admit, like I reveled in using the words out there and bizarre because I really think, and the love class is something that I'm really proud of. And it's part of a much bigger, I think, um, sort of mission in my life and creative, um, enterprise and whatever I make contact with to kind of bring more of what's considered, um, uh, kind of off limits into the everyday or what kind of transformational spaces can exist and how can we start to talk about them and how, what we formerly can, didn't talk about whether it was the unconscious or other dimensions or our spirit or our soul or our psyche or love or these things that I think in the past, um, we've been frightened to talk about for fear that someone will think of us as not serious or, um, uh, fluffy or when in fact, like what's more serious than love, like what's more potent and in the here and now than these, these things. So I think even for me, my own process, um, I just, I'm enjoying getting to the place where you can say that and I can say, Oh, thank you. That's a compliment, you know? Um, (laughs) But uh, to get into the little bit of the architecture of the class. And so um, I designed the class with three colleagues. They were child psychiatrist fellows at the time. And one um, teaches another section of the class now. So he's one of the professors also of this class called Love Actually. Um, His name's Dr. Francesco Ferrari. And the four of us really incubated it together um, with the idea that um, with the kind of Um, question and hope that there are aspects of love that are teachable and that even by opening the questions and by bringing forth the ideas, um, we can help uh, open these topics and explore in new ways, you know? And I think that, um, well, let me get into the architecture a little bit and then I I can, I can, 
elaborate on that point, but um, the architecture of the class is uh, basically looking at love, um, what I think of as more vertically and through different lenses, um, and then more horizontally or across a lifetime. So vertically being um, kind of these concepts like the real key concept of immature, mature love, looking at it through neuroscience, um, humanities, um, and then and then in terms of self, um, collective, and universal. Those would be kind of the vertical dimensions going upward if you kind of visualize a dot and then like concentric circles and then say like, you know, however you want to picture it, expanding from there into kind of more universal themes. So that would be the vertical. And then the horizontal being more the personal, the self. So love across a lifespan, right? A lifetime. So mother and father, infant love, both from both perspectives of parent and baby, attunement, attachment into love in childhood. And the guest speaker for that class is my daughter, who's nine and who comes in as the guest expert on, on love in childhood because she's a kid. <laughs> you know, and, and it's great. And it's, it's so alive and she's right there and she's, she's describing her experience and she's talking about, you know, her own uh, development and having her little blankie when she was a kid as a transitional object and what that felt like, and then not needing that anymore. And then developing friendships and, and that, you know, that class is a lot about empathy and, um, and then it goes into adolescence, which we already touched on and then into falling in love and then into partnership and all of its undulations and all of the risks involved there and, and, and all of the ways that that's, even being reshaped in current, you know, culture, American culture, and and then on to love and loss, and heartbreak is in that in that one, and um, and also other kinds of heartbreak, like when somebody goes against what they who they think their family thinks they should be with, and there's this separation, and there's this pain there around. Um, choosing differently and choosing what's right for them, but then having that fallout and then obviously death, losing loved ones. Um, but there's all kinds of deaths, you know, that don't have to be literal deaths there. Um, and then into my favorite class, which is the last class, love and repair, mm -hmm. which talks about neuroplasticity and, um, psychotherapy and, um, and mentorship and, uh, you know, all the ways that love is sort of a, a force and a reparative um, energy, basically, and the different ways that this is going to play out in different venues, um, whether it's in neural networks or in the therapist's office or with a mentor or even in a healing relationship or anything. So, and, you know, all relationships, I think, are not all, but if we're kind of moving along and evolving, there's often something healing in almost every relationship mm -hmm. um, or, you know, that we're choosing to cultivate. Not that. Yeah. Okay. Several questions uh, about yeah, this. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to start with the impact of, of parents and, and kind of the relationships that we had with them and, and how that ends yeah. up impacting our relationships as adults, because, um, uh, it's a pattern that I, I keep, I seem to keep coming across in every relationship book I read it, you know, it, yeah. you know, it makes you, you know, write the exercise, which parent was the most difficult for you. And, and, you know, yes. this is the parent that usually you seek in your partners until you recognize the pattern. Uh, so yes. I'm curious, like, what is, you know, does your research show that to be true? Like what is the impact of our parents and then the relationships that we had with them on our ability to form um, relationships in adult life? 
Yeah. Um, right. Well, the, the, the real, the relationship with the parent is, is the first is the primary, um, relationship and could be mother or father or both or primary caregiver, you know, for some people, but whoever that, that person is, it's, it's like, if you think of the brain as soft wax in a way, and then there's an, there's an imprint, right? There's an imprint made there by the early relationships. And so the child doesn't know that this isn't how the whole planet operates for the child, the mother, the mother, mother is my planet, mom, mommy, mama, whatever you call the, the mom, or I'm, I'm saying the mom for ease, but it could be the father or the nanny um, or wh- whomever, but the grandma, that person um, is the planet. So whatever laws of gravity and relationship um, apply feel like this is the way the world works, you know? And so those patterns take some undoing and redoing when they're not healthy in the long term. So, you know, in the practice, for example, if someone, if say I'm starting with a session with a new patient and let's say they're, they're late and they, uh, they come into the room and I'm sitting there waiting and I'm not feeling particularly anything about them being late. I'm just taking it in and they have this look on their face. Like they're already cringing. Like they're expecting me to reprimand them say, but they're not even saying a word to me. They're just, they're just showing me. Right. And then there's this, um, and then they might apologize five times or something that already I'm getting a, a lot of a sense of how it went down in, in a, in a primary relationship for them, right. That there was someone that was highly critical. There was someone that, um, th- they sort of had to do the lion's share of apologizing and apologizing was somehow the way back into some kind of relationship, etc. So in other words, that, that's just a little bit of a biopsy into a way that that happens. So, so I think that these, um, these relations, and, and especially I think at times you mentioned the negative traits or the harder traits in, in a, in a parent. I mean, often the harder traits are the ones that we've got to really work with, right? Whereas the easier traits or the, the more effortless traits or the traits that just happen to resonate better with us, they don't really, um, it's not that they don't impact us. They do. They make us feel loved and secure and lots of ways, but in terms of what gets highlighted in dynamics later on, it often is those things that we've sort of spent our, our energy trying to quote solve with the parents, you know, or, you know, and oftentimes what comes up with a parent at the time for the child, it is necessary, you know, for a child, a lot of the times there, there is sometimes a situation where I need to take care of mom. So she'll take care of me. You know, I need to find a way to make mom laugh again so she doesn't get too depressed so that she'll feed me, you know, to put it really bluntly, right? I mean, that's kind of a heartbreaking example, but one that exists often, or so she'll give me love that I need to grow or that so she'll give me attention so that I can feel seen and feel heard. So a lot of times for a kid, that is what's happening. Um, and it is maybe necessary in the sense that it creates a better childhood for them in a certain way. But then later that apparatus is, is not, 
it's like an old operating system, right? It's totally mal it malfunctions in the wider world because that isn't that isn't a um a template for a healthy partnership, right? That's a that's so the way these things get grafted on in later years, they have to be reworked, you know? And so maybe it takes that person's partner to say, hey, like I notice when I'm down, you're always trying to, you know, get me out of it, but that's not your responsibility. Um, it's okay for me to feel sad and I'm not depressed and I'm still here. Do you see that I'm still here? I'm just feeling sad because, you know, somebody, you know, just left that I care about or what have you. And so those things can slowly get repatterned with, you know, receptivity and listening. Um, but it does take work, you know, it takes, attention and presence to inner life and, and work. Um, and it, and it sort of, I guess is looping me back to, um, that question that I didn't really quite answer yet, which is, is it teachable? I mean, you know, one of the premises of the class is really that, um, really, yes, um, to a certain degree, sure. You have to, you do have to have kind of the basic foundations of, um, of, of attachment, right. Where there was a parent, you know, what Winnicott would say, a good enough mother, a good enough father, which is really most of us have on the plane. I mean, somebody that was there to respond to enough of our needs that we grow up feeling like an intact person in the world. And provided that we have that, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for what Eric Fromm talks about in terms of practice, you know, the, one of the foundational, um, books for the class is, um, this book, the art of loving. And basically Eric Fromm says, um, that, you know, part of what our modern condition is as woman and as man and as human, let's put it that way, is that we think we will just happen upon love and it'll just come to us and we can kind of remain passive and just kind of look for it, so to speak. But, um, he said, what if we think of love as a practice and as a faculty in the same way that we have to learn how to shoot a bow and arrow and archery or that, you know, and, and basically if we start to think of it like that, how will that change how we are in the world? So I definitely think the class is coming from that place and also deeply for me, the place of that ideas help that if you, if, and stories help. You know, they, you know, I, I think maybe what motivates me at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, <laughs> in the middle of the day, um, is, is the, I, you know, is the idea of, well, what, what would have helped me when, when I was young, what do I wish I would have known, you know, at 20 at NYU or at, in college, or, um, what do I wish I would have known at 10? What, what do I wish someone would have helped um, offer me in these ways? And how would that have, you know, changed how I could relate in the world? So I think I'm just always kind of looking for ways to do that. And the love classes is, is one of those ways. Mm. Whew, big mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I want to look at uh, another question around this. Um, you know, as we talked about right at the beginning of this episode, today happens to be my parents' anniversary. And I told you my parents actually had an arranged marriage. And yeah. uh, I have really wondered what, you know, what your work uh, 
shows about how this differs across cultures. You know, I mean, one of the questions that comes to my mind when I think about my parents is, wow, like you just agreed that you're going to spend the rest of your life with this person. It's again, it's really, isn't it? It's so much of um, partnership is about architecture of expectation and what we think we're signing up for. Uh-huh. You know, I think a lot of American modern love is built on this premise, promise, maybe even lark fantasy that one relationship can contain it all, you know, and that, and that the, and even prioritizing romantic love over all love, over friendship, over, um, you know, uh, lots of different, you know, passion, lots of different kinds of love, even, you know, kind of agape, like love of thy, you know, neighbor or, even stranger or just any of these other dimensions. So, you know, I think that, um, depending on how we define what we think we're getting and what love means to us, um, shifts, shifts our version of how we feel about it. Right. And I, and I think that right now in the zeitgeist really is this time when people are looking at, well, how do relationships work for me? What works for me? Not how, what is the quote ideal or the one box that I'm supposed to fit into, but you know, what is the proper consolation for my nature and for who I am and, um, and for what we want to express together, you know? Um, so in terms of your parents arranged marriage, you know, they, um, arranged marriages, it's, it's a totally different paradigm, right? That it's not this kind of Western paradigm that, you know, Joseph Campbell really traced to only the 12th century where people expected their partners to also be their ro- romantic muses and their best friends. And, you know, adding to that all of their, their sexual um, life and their confidant and all these things that we sort of have tended to bundle into one person and then feel upset when that person isn't meeting all of our needs, you know, and I think what's shifting is that we're starting to ask more and more, well, um, what's fair here for us and what feels actually resonant in terms of that. And how can I get my needs met in my life? But do they all need to be, is it, is it, um, is it fair or even possible to have them all met through one through one person in this way, you know, with arranged marriage, um, you know, that was really seen as a two families joining, um, often a financial partnership, often a contract of we're going to continue our lineage and our traditions. And it was, it it was seen with completely different, um, um, is seen with completely or many different goals in mind, you know, the goals of, uh, being soulmates, and having a kind of cosmic, um, mind-blowing dimensions, you know, to the to the partnership is not it's not really in that voca- You know, it's not. Well, I won't say it's not really, but I, my my experience is that it's it, it's not the primary um, part of that. You know, of that vocabulary a lot of the time. You know, I won't say all that. I don't. I, I'm not here to make any kind of blanket statements, but at all, because I think there are um, there are people that are deeply in love that have arranged marriages that I that I've known parents of friends of mine that I've known. So, um, 
you know, and, and whose families really thought, you know, these people will make it, these people can fall in love, you know? And so I think it really just depends on what are the leading core values of what the coming together means too. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts too about it. <laughs> so you, you, it, it actually, yeah. you know, bring, what it, what's bringing up for me as, as I'm listening to you talk about this is, you know, like my sister and I are both uh, single um, mm-hmm. and, you know, for us to get to, you know, mid thirties, late thirties, uh, especially in the community that we grew up in and still be single is it, it's, it's stressful. Um, I think it's a big source of stress for my mom. And I'm, you know, always thinking if you didn't stress about it, we would be much more likely to meet somebody. It, it's this sort mm-hmm. of battle I'm very clear that, you know, you talk about the sort of cosmic connection and, and, you know, I was having a conversation with my, my business partner, Brian, the other day, he said, I think you have this very Hollywood, you know, Disney movie idealistic version of what this is all supposed to go like. And he's like, I think Mm -hmm. you're going to be much more successful if you let go of that idealism, which I, I get. And at the same time, I'm very clear that I don't want what my parents have. Like, I think that would be, that would be devastating to me. Like I, yeah. I really would feel like I would show up at the wedding and leave that day and hop on a flight and probably not talk to my parents for months after if that actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea, so you've got this sort of, you know, cultural uh, difference, right? So we happen to have parents who were, uh, you know, arranged, um, you know, but we also grew up here in the United States. So we have an entirely different perception of what falling in love is supposed to be like. And at the same time, like our parents probably want this more than anything in the world as soon as fucking possible. (laughs) So, (laughs) uh, yeah, that's that's kind of what comes up for me as I I was listening to you describe that. Yeah, yeah, they want it for you. And they're also out of their territory, too, because they're not arranging a marriage for you. And they and that's not that's not what's happening. So they they're also feeling like, well, how does this work? And you're feeling like, how does this work? And, um, and, you know, I think that with our parents, you know, it's not what they say, it's who they are in certain ways. And that goes for them as individuals, but also in the relationship. So, um, it's not to say that that, that becomes our only model, but it is this, it's this first up close version of, how we see something working Mm -hmm. and, you know, and how we experience um, maybe what, what is a partnership in a certain way that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the, a person, a kid is experiencing intimacy um, through their parents with each other. Cause a lot of partnerships don't have that dimension arranged or not, you know, I mean, so um I think also there's an added layer for a lot of children who felt like they didn't have that growing up of, okay, well, how, what, where are my models? I don't, how do I inhabit this? And how do I, right, where do I go to feel like I have some sense of what this experience can be? And really, I mean, I think ultimately it, it, it comes from, um, you know, a deep knowing of the self and feeling like, oh, okay, I know myself well enough to trust my feelings and trust my intuition and trust what's happening and to include more of myself in this experience over time and the other person to do the same. And there's a lot of, um, you know, it really, I think, means that we have to almost like agree to be the truth 
you know, in a, in a, in whatever's unfolding, which is a lot. It's a tall order. I mean, I think a lot of relationships end up taking a lot longer to end for people, even though they knew kind of in their heart and hearts originally something's not right because nobody quite wanted to say the truth. And then once the truth finally emerged or was known, it became very clear. No, this is not, this can't, this isn't, this isn't it. This can't really exist. And we don't really feel good about it. Um, but it's hard to, to go there sometimes. Um, so I think it is, uh, you know, I mean, I would say, you know, on a personal note, just keep, keep doing what you're doing. You know, you are doing it, you're doing all of it. So you're, you're, you're in it, you know, and, and as long as you're in it and you're asking the questions and you're feeling the feelings and you're using your platforms and your creative ways to grapple with these things, you know, that, that is, that, that is it. I mean, that is you putting your attention towards what matters to you and, um, and finding ways to engage it so that you can, can know what you need to know. Um, and there's so many ways to know what we need to know. You know, it's not just about our parents, right? There's endless opportunities through all of life to, to be, to have new parents in the sense of new mentors and also to reparent ourselves, you know? So I don't, I also think sometimes we can get, you know, all of us can sort of get stuck in saying, well, that happened and I'll never, I'll never recover from that or I'm doomed, you know, or something like that. And that's not, that's not true at all. I mean, and I would say for you, you're, you're, you're doing it like you're surfing these waves. So it's very, I'm very excited for you. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, I think that makes a really sort of beautiful place to wrap up our conversation. Um, I want to finish with one last question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable mm -hmm, creative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Mm. I think it's their ability to, um, include more and more parts of who they are without judging or shaming all those parts, those that uniqueness and that when they can do that and start to share those gifts and have that mirrored back, then it like, it just is, it creates an expansion in that person. You know, I think about like myself when I started to let um, all of my art out into the world and just did this awesome collaboration at BAM, this video art and all these dancers. And, and it was, that was the moment for me that I was like, I am unmistakably me because I'm combining all that I am, all the instruments, every cell in my body right now is, is buzzing and working and lighting up. And when you get to a place in yourself where you can allow whatever your own grid is in that way to, you can acknowledge it, accept it, and like power up and let it be part of who you are and not worry about what somebody else is going to say or how someone else is defining you. Wait, I thought you were this and not that or, but just letting it 
letting yourself run that through, um, then, then you're unmistakable. And it's, and that is so liberating for everyone that you make contact with, because then they feel like I can be, I can be unmistakable too. I can have this. And so can the world. Incredible. Um, this has been truly beautiful and profound. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for, for oh. taking the time to join us and, and sharing all of this with our listeners. This has been amazing. Oh, Srini, it's so my pleasure. And I, um, I look forward to having you in class and knowing you um, over the years. And thank you for doing these and creating the space for, for people to share and for also for just for being you, for being um, the kind of presence that makes me uh, want to want to be me. Um, which is the best. It's like the best feeling. So thank you. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.